You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you, Larry, for interpreting again the theme. Excellent, excellent. Good morning. This morning when you walked into the auditorium, you passed under our double doors coming into the auditorium here as you do every week. And as you walked in, you passed under a banner that is over that door and has been for the last 13 years. It is the banner that states our vision statement. Some of you have walked through those doors so many times that you don't even see that banner anymore. Others of you, you are fairly new and you perhaps even wonder what it is. Well, that banner states our vision statement, the vision that God has given us as a church. Let me read it to you. Reaching the disinterested doubter and the disenfranchised believer in an atmosphere of acceptance, blending innovative methods biblical values, contemporary worship, and practical teaching to meet the needs of people where they are. That vision statement was written in 1992 when we transitioned this church from the format, which was somewhat of a traditional format, to the format that we are operating in and doing ministry in today. That vision statement was born when we translated the church into a hospital. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to revisit that, that vision statement for you. For some of you that have been here for a while, and maybe you have walked under that door many times, and you don't even see those words anymore. For you, I hope that this can be a reminder to you. I hope that you can fall in love again today with the vision that God has given us. For some of you, maybe this is your first time here, or you've been here for a little while, and you really don't know what those words mean. You've never heard... Talk, they never heard those words talked about before. And what I pray this morning is that you can catch the essence of the vision that God has given us as a church and you can climb on board. Because you see, we filter everything we do through that vision statement. We don't do anything without first filtering it through that vision statement. It's not my vision. It's not your vision. It is God's vision for us. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. One translator says where the people, the people are in chaos. The NIV translates it, people cast off all restraint where there is no vision. The, the point is that without vision, the result is anarchy, the result is chaos, and the end result of that is perishing. And so here's what vision does. Vision gives boundaries. Vision gives direction. Vision gives meaning and purpose to what you're doing. And my understanding of how God works is that he always works through vision. Whenever God wants to accomplish something, he communicates a vision and then he empowers a people to fulfill that vision. For Noah, the vision was building the ark. For Abraham, the vision was going to a land that he had never seen before and having his descendants multiplied. For Moses, it was leading the Hebrew people out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land. For Jesus, it was a vision of the cross and paying the price of the sin of all mankind. For the Apostle Paul, it was a vision of taking the gospel to the Gentile world, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Each one of them operated within the boundaries and within the confines of that vision. And for each one of them, it was that vision that sustained them when the, when the going got tough. For Noah, when the days turned into years in building the ark, it was that vision that sustained him. For Paul, or for Abraham, when the, when the days were long and the distance was difficult and long and moving to that land, it was the vision that God had given him that sustained him. For Moses, when the people began to gripe and complain and murmur and look back into Egypt, it was the vision that sustained him. For Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, the night he was arrested and he prayed, Oh God, if Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It was the vision of the cross that sustained Jesus on that time. And when Paul was shipwrecked and when he was beaten and when he was thrown into prison time after time, it was the vision that sustained him 
and kept him moving forward. You see, that's what vision does. And that's what vision is. And so what I want to do this morning at the beginning of 2005 is I want to remind you about the vision. Because you see, we are operating within this vision. Not only are we operating it now, but we must continue to operate in it. So we must continue to come back and revisit the vision that God has given us. And if you're ever going to be more than a warm body that's warming up one of these cold seats, and that's another story in and of itself, if you're ever going to be more than a warm body that's taking up space and breathing up air, then you're going to have to catch this vision. This vision is going to have to catch you. This vision is going to have to wrap itself around you, and you're going to have to wrap yourself around it, or you'll never become more than someone who's warming up a cold seat and taking up space and breathing up air. And that is, in fact, my prayer for you this morning, that you will be gripped by the enormity, that you will be able to become become passionate about this vision that God has given us. Now, how many of you have ever heard me talk about the vision statement before in a Sunday morning service? About every, it's been two or three years since I did this. About every two or three years, we come back and we revisit the vision statement. I've, I've got five points this morning. The first one is extremely long, and the rest of them are going to fit within the parameters of that. That doesn't really mean a whole lot for you, so don't set your clock or don't set your alarm. But I have five words this morning, and each one of them are I-N-G words. In other words, they end in I-N-G in order to elaborate for you the vision statement. And the first word in the vision statement is reaching. Reaching. It's the first word because it's foremost in the vision. It's what God has called us to do. We must be about the business of reaching. Every vision that has God as its source has reaching at its center. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus said, marching orders to the church, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore you go. In other words, Jesus said, I have the authority to send you. Because I have authority, you go. And you go into all the earth, and you make disciples, and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Jesus said, go and reach people, make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the very last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. From the guttermost to the uttermost, you shall be my people. You see, people matter to God. And because people matter to God, then they must matter to us. We are to be about the business of reaching. But you know, it's not enough to just say that. Every church you talk to say, oh yeah, we're in the business of reaching people, but the truth of the matter is they're not doing very good business because they're not very intentional and not very strategic about that. So it's not enough just to say that we're reaching people, but we have to identify, we have to be intentional, and we have to strategize how that is going to happen. So let me ask and answer two or three questions for you. The first question is this, who are we to be reaching? Well, let me say up front, we're open to anybody. We're not going to turn anybody away. We want anybody that wants to come, that God leads here, we want them to come and be a part of celebration. But we also realize different strokes for different folks. And it takes all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of people. So because of that, we have targeted and we have strategized to reach two very specific groups of people that we believe God has called us to reach. The disinterested doubter, and the disenfranchised believer. Now, I'm going to define them for you in just a moment, but let me say up front that these two groups of people have one thing in common. They fall into a category that we would call unchurched, unchurched people. Now, George Barna of the Barna Research Institute defines unchurched like this. An unchurched person is an adult person, 18 or over, who hasn't attended a Christian service within the last six months not including a holiday service or a special event or a wedding or funeral. In other words, Easter and Christmas doesn't get it, okay? Those set aside has not attended a Christian service within the last six months. Now, let me tell you something that is incredibly alarming here, folks, about this. The church is losing the battle in America in reaching the unchurched person. As a matter of fact, 13 years ago when I did this research... The number of unchurched persons since that time until 2004, listen to this, in America has grown by 92%. 
in 13 years, the numbers of unchurched people in America has grown by 92%. Now that's incredible, isn't it? It has nearly doubled since 1991. The numbers of people that were not in church in 1991, that number has nearly doubled in the last 13 years. So we have to be intentional and strategic in reaching these two groups. They're both unchurched. The first one is the disinterested doubter. You go, well, who is this animal? What does this person look like, smell like, and act like, and walk like, and talk like? Well, this person, the disinterested doubter, is the person that does not know Christ and is not interested in the church, okay? Now, that's our person that we're strategizing to reach, to reach the person that's not interested in us. In fact, this person may even be hostile toward the church. Now, I didn't say they weren't interested in God because oftentimes disinterested doubters are very interested in God. They want to talk about God, but they are not interested in the church. Now, in 2004, research reveals that four out of five people interviewed in America say they prayed sometime within the last week. Now, it may have been one of those foxhole prayers, or it may have been a real live prayer, but in the last week, four out of five people in America say they prayed within the last week. 98% of Americans, when interviewed, say they believe in God. They believe in God. But most of them then will follow that up by saying, but I don't believe in the church. Now, the fact that they pray and the fact that they say they believe in God, listen to this, does not mean that they are a Christian. It simply means that they have a God concept. It simply means that they have some kind of spiritual interest. They have a certain level of spiritual thirst. But they say, but I don't believe that the church has anything to say to satisfy this thirst. They may say to you, you know, I've been there, done that before. I've been to that fountain, and there's not anything coming out of that fountain to satisfy my thirst. Now, at work, if you have a water fountain that you go to day after day after day, and you push that button, and nothing ever comes out of that, how long is it going to take you to figure out, well, I need to find another fountain? I mean, how long are you going to keep going back to that fountain day after? You're going to figure it out. That fountain's not giving any water. Now, what the disinterested doubter oftentimes will say is simply this. I'm interested in God, and I'm interested in talking about God, but I've been to that well before called the church, and there's nothing coming out of that well that is going to satisfy my spiritual thirst. I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. Now, here's the tragedy, folks. When the disinterested doubter says that, he is often very, very on target. He is often very, very correct because the truth of the matter is for many of these folks, when they did go to church, if they did, all they got was blah, blah, blah. You say, James, that is incredibly harsh. How do you know that? Well, let me give you a little bit of interesting research. The best I could understand in 1990 there were about 375,000 churches in America. Does that shock you? 375,000 churches in America. The best I can tell in 2004, and it's difficult to get these numbers exactly, there are now approximately 350,000 churches in America. That means in the last 14,000 years, there are 25,000 fewer churches than there were in 1990 in America. Now, during that time, I happen to know that many tens of thousands of new churches have been planted in America. We have helped three churches, uh, at least three, working on four churches to be planted during that period of time. So that means while all these new churches are being planted, then a whole lot of old ones must have died out. And they did. And uh, probably a whole lot of others should have. As a matter of fact, a whole lot of them have already died. They just haven't held the funeral yet. The average attendance, get this folks, the average attendance of a church in America is 89 people. The average attendance. Now there's some that have 10 or 15 or 20,000. There's many churches our size, but the average number of people in a church service in America is 89 people. Now folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we are not reaching the disinterested doubter. Why is that? It's not because there's anything wrong with the message. Folks, there's nothing wrong with the message. It's still true, isn't it? 
There is still hope and life in Jesus Christ. That is the life-giving message, and the message is still true. So it's not a problem with the message. It's a problem with the messenger. The messenger is doing something wrong because the message is still true. So what we're doing is that we are targeting this disinterested doubter. We are specifically, intentionally, strategically trying to reach that disinterested doubter. Now, I'm going to talk to you in a moment about how we're doing that. The second group of people is the disenfranchised believer. The disenfranchised believer is a person who says, I know Christ, and they genuinely know Christ as Lord and Savior, but I have given up on the church. Now, they have given up on the church from one of two perspectives. Perhaps they've given up on the traditional church, the church in which they grew up. And one day, as an adult, that's the place where they came to know Christ. One day, as an adult, they sat there in church one Sunday morning. They said, why in the world am I doing this? This is not doing anything in my life. I'm not hearing anything about how to live life. And so they just drop out. They haven't left Christ. They just left the church because the traditional church was a well that was dry. Or on the other side, they've been disenfranchised by church because they were because of the excess and abuse, okay, in the church. And they got tired of that. And so they pulled out. They haven't left Christ, but they've left the church. They are Christians that are disconnected from the body of Christ. Now, we target the disinterested doubter and the disenfranchised believer because, you say, well, why target the, the disenfranchised believer? I mean, haven't they already got their fire insurance? Aren't they are going to heaven? Yes, if they're genuine in Christ, they are going to heaven. But we know that as long as they are disconnected from the body of Christ, they will never be able to reach their potential in Christ. They will never be able to be involved in the real ministry of Christ. And so we call it our vision to reach not only the disinterested doubter that doesn't know Christ, but the disenfranchised believer that has given up on the church. Now, how many of you, when you came to celebration, would have classified yourself either as a disinterested doubter or a disenfranchised believer? Raise your hands. This is a more spiritual crowd than the first service. The first service, almost everybody raised their hand. Well, you know, that, but that is encouraging. If enough of you raise your hand. That's encouraging to me because the church has to ask itself two questions. The first question is, what business are you in? And the second question is, how's business? What business are you in and how's business? If we are in the business of reaching the disinterested and the disenfranchised, then we have to ask ourselves the questions, well, then how is business? And I'm happy to report to you business is good at Celebration Fellowship. We are reaching the disinterested. We are reaching the disenfranchised. Now, reaching, okay, that's the who. Let's talk about the how for a moment. A key word in the vision statement is a word balance, although the word balance is not actually used. When we wrote that, we called it blending. But what we really meant was that we were going to balance. Now listen, and I'll talk about what we're going to balance here in just a moment. The longer I live, and I am 50 years old, closing in on 51, I am an old goat. I mean, I, you know, that's hard for me to believe. I really, I feel like I'm 17 or 18 still. You know, got the world by the tail and all of that kind of stuff. The longer I live, the more I realize the importance of balance. The longer I live, the more importance balance becomes to me. Because you see, we live in an imbalanced world. And I believe in our culture, people are crying out for balance. We live in a world of extremes. And oftentimes the church moves to extremes. You go all the way over to this extreme and then the pendulum swings all the way over here. And I find in my life that whenever my life is at one of those extremes, I always miss God. Because where I find God is in the place of balance. Now, it happens in churches. And whenever a church moves into imbalance, either this direction or this direction, let me tell you what happens. It obscures the message of Jesus Christ to a vast majority of the population that cannot relate to that extreme. And here are the two extremes. The one extreme is the hyper-traditional church, what we call affectionately around here, Thai church. Are you guys alive today? You ever been to Thai church? Some of you really miss wearing your tie, don't you? We cut them off when you bring them in here. But Thai church, where you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to act a certain way, where they're using an 18th, 18th century instrument, which is the church organ singing 17th and 18th century music, and they're going to do that way, and they're dwindling, but they're going to die, and they're going to go down with a ship. 
And so one day you wake up there and you realize, you know, there's nothing going on here that's really meeting the needs of my life. And so you pull out. So they have been disenfranchised because of hyper-traditionalism. But the other side of the thing is hyper-radicalism. I mean, where people are swinging from the chandeliers and they're gibbering and jattering and nobody has any idea what they're saying. And the unbeliever walks into that place and he says, these people scare me to death. They must be drunk as old Cooter Brown. I don't know who Cooter Brown was, but I think he stayed drunk all the time because I've heard that all my life. Paul even dealt with that in the first century as he wrote to the Corinthian church. They were acting like that. And he said, you bunch of idiots, shut up. He said, a, a, a person comes into your midst and they think you're all drunk. And so there's these extremes out here. And, and, and we have this tendency to go to extremes. And I, I believe that God's call to us is to find the place of balance. You go, well, what are you balancing? Well, let me tell you what we're balancing. It says it in the vision statement. We are balancing traditional biblical values with contemporary and innovative methodology of communicating that message. You see, the message of the Word of God and the message of Christ does not change. Now, let me say this and say this unapologetically, and let me say it very clearly for you. I believe the book. I believe the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book, okay? But the book being God's book, the Word of God. We believe in the book. We believe in the Bible. But we believe only in the book, not the traditions that Christians have built up around the book. Are you with me there? <laughs> you see, and the problem is a lot of times you do something kind of a little different and they, it, because that looks different than what the traditional church, people call you liberal. You know, I've had people call me liberal. Sometimes people think that we are a liberal church, and I go, folks, you can't get any more right-wing conservative when it comes to theology than me. I believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God. I have no problem using those, those words about the Word of God because it comes from a perfect source, so it is perfect in and of itself, in and of its essence. I love the Word of God. I preach the Word of God. I memorize the Word of God. I am a right-wing, Bible-thumping fundamentalist. I don't know how, any, how to say it any differently than that. I believe the whole book. You have to either believe it all or believe none of it, folks. We don't have the options of picking and choosing what we believe of God's Word. So we are people of the book, but only of the book. Not the traditions that people have built up around the book and have invested with divine authority. I don't have any patience for that. So time, sometimes we do things that don't violate the book, but they violate the traditions that maybe the church you grew up in built up around the book, and I couldn't care less about those traditions. Let me give you for instance. Here in a little while, we're going to baptize. We baptize one at the end of the first service. We're going to baptize three people at the end of the, the second service. One of the people that is being baptized is a woman, and she's going to be baptized by a woman. The woman that's going to baptize her is one of our counselors. Her name is Nancy Houston. This woman came to know Christ. Nancy has been a tremendous influence in her life. She requested that Nancy baptize her. And asked, is that okay? I said, well, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? The Word of God does not say that women can't baptize. What's happened, that's a tradition that has been built up that have extrapolated from certain passages in the Bible and come to the conclusion that women can't do anything in the church but sit and look pretty. And some can't do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so we are committed to the Word of God, but not to the traditions that have been built up around the Word of God and then have been invested with the authority of the Word of God. Are you with me? Okay. So we live in a very fast-paced, changing world. So we're taking traditional biblical values. We believe the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book, and then we are balancing that with contemporary and innovative ways of communicating that message. I believe it is unforgivable to take the message of life in Jesus Christ and obscure it with tradition. I think that is unforgivable. When we have example after example in the Word of God, that that was never God's intention. The greatest missionary that ever lived, who was the Apostle Paul, was a Bible fundamentalist, but he was a trailblazer when it came to methodology and how he communicated that message. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, this is what Paul says. This was his strategy. 
He said, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I become a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I become as one without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I may win some. Now, when Paul is saying that, he's not talking about changing the message. He's talking about changing how he communicates the message depending on who he's speaking to. When I'm speaking to someone under the law, I speak as though under the law. When I'm speaking to someone out from under the law, I speak as though not of the law. When I speak to a Jew, I speak like a Jew. When I speak to a Gentile, I speak like a Gentile. In other words, I put the package, I put the message in a package that my hearer can understand. So the vision God has given us is to take the message that never changes and with contemporary innovative methodology constantly be finding ways to communicate that so that people can understand it. George Hunter in his book, How to Reach Secular People, puts it this way. When secular people move toward Christianity, they usually want the real thing, not some new theology, but they want it in terms they can understand. There's the key. It's the the same message that Jesus preached that we believe and we proclaim, but we're trying to find ways to proclaim it so that people can understand it in our culture. So we are reaching Who? Disenfranchised, disinterested. How? Balancing traditional biblical values, contemporary innovative methodology. Third, what are we doing to reach these people? Our vision statement says, meeting the needs of people where they are. My, how time flies when you're having fun. Meeting the needs of people where they are. Here's the deal, folks. We understand, and we have had it modeled by Jesus, that to get into the heart of someone who has a spiritual need, When you meet a physical need, when you meet a felt need, you build a bridge into that person's life. So the disinterested doubter becomes interested when he has a need that you meet. The disenfranchised believer becomes franchised when the body of believers meets a felt need. So meeting people's felt needs, the needs that they're aware of, builds a bridge into their life so we can ultimately meet the real need they have, which is a need for Jesus Christ's. The disenfranchised as well as the disinterested. Now Jesus modeled that approach for us. Jesus often came and he would meet someone's felt need. They had a need of hunger or they had a need of, of, uh, of healing of some kind. And he would meet the felt need and then he would move into meeting their deepest spiritual need. You see, the vision here is about the church being a hospital. That's what it's all about, isn't it? About a, a need meeting place where the great physician who is Jesus can do his physician work. The church where sick marriage can get well without fear. When a person who has addictions in his or her life, the addictions can lose their power. Where destructive behaviors that have been overcoming you can finally become overcome in that environment. Where emotional wounds can be closed and can be healed so the person can move beyond those emotional wounds. So, So that ultimately their real life need, which is spiritual healing, can take place. You see, really, folks, People are not asking today in our culture very much, is the Bible true? They're not really even asking, is Christianity true? Here's the question they're asking, does it work? They want to know, does it work? If it works, it must be true in the minds of most people. So what we have to do is that we have to demonstrate that it works, and that's what we're doing. That when you take the truth of God and you apply it to the trouble and the devastation of life, it works it works so this has to happen folks reaching disenfranchised disinterested reaching balancing biblical values innovative methodology meeting needs i you know i believe this is the church's calling not just celebration i believe it's his calling to all of his people there's not a week that goes by that or hardly is a week that goes by i don't want to exaggerate I would never do that but hardly a week goes by that I'm not called upon to minister in a situation with someone who's actually member of another church and the reason we're called upon to do it is because their church doesn't understand it and is not strategized to meet that need I had a call this week spent four or five hours Friday and Saturday talking with a young woman married young mother 
actively involved, she and her husband, in their church. They've got some issues that have come up in their church. Somebody said, you need to call the pastor over at my church. There are a bunch of idiots over there. Don't tell them what he's going to say, but, you know, call him. And a real-life need, and it's a serious, I mean, a serious deal. And the, and the tragedy to me is that she's having to call the pastor of another church because her church is not strategized to even understand the issue or to deal with the issue in any form or fashion. And that's to me, is horrible. What's up with that? When Jesus has called us to be a hospital, I believe he's called the entire body of Christ to be a hospital where the great physician can do his work. So I hooked him up with a couple of our people, got him hooked up in some of our groups, and we're willing and we're more than happy to take that load on. But wouldn't it be wonderful if that church was also a hospital? We're, we're loaning out this next week one of our most experienced recovery support leaders to another church in central Arlington, a friend of mine, a church that we helped plant, as a matter of fact. He didn't hear it two years ago when I said, you better do this, you better do this, or you're going to be up to your ears in problems. And sure enough, he's up to his ears in problems. So two weeks ago, he calls me and says, can you help us? I said, yeah, duh. So I'm sending my most experienced, one of my most experienced recovery support leaders over there. He's going to take about 10 of his people through making peace with your past. And they're going to start getting down in the, down in the, you know, the, the, the stuff with people. And I thank God for that. But everybody believers ought to be doing that. It's our calling at least. Reaching, second of all, accepting. It says in an atmosphere of acceptance. This vision cannot be fulfilled in any other environment but an atmosphere of acceptance. The most devastating charge that the world ever points at the church is the church of judgmentalism, where they say you are unwilling to accept me where I am. Now let me say to you, clarify, very, here, perk your ears up and hear this. Let me say to you that acceptance does not mean condoning sin. It does not mean compromising truth. It never does, it never has, and it never will. Some have the idea when you talk about an accepting environment that that means that you don't have any standards. Some have this idea that if you have standards or you hold people accountable, then that's judgmentalism, and that is wrong. You must get the distinction. Judgment is always for the purpose of condemnation, and that is always wrong. Accountability is for the purpose of growth and change and becoming the person that God created you to be. Acceptance says this, I do not judge you, therefore I do not condemn you, but I want you to become the person that God intends for you to be. In other words, acceptance says we're going to take you where you are, but understand this, we love you too much to let you stay where you are. Are you with me? In other words, if you think that acceptance is an environment where you can come and live like you want to with nobody calling you on the carpet, you don't understand. That's license. That's not acceptance. Acceptance says there's no place that you can have been. There's nothing that you can have done in your life that we are not willing to take you where you are, but we are committed to not letting you stay where you are. If you think you're going to come to celebration and live a double life and say, talk out of both sides of your mouth and talk about Jesus with one side of your mouth and live, live a life of dishonoring God on the other side, you can't do it. We're going to root you out. But not in order to judge you and condemn you, but for the purpose of allowing you to become the person that God called you to be. That's what acceptance means. It doesn't mean no standards. It means we're going to take you wherever you are, wherever we find you, but we're going to move you beyond that. Again, our model is Jesus. This is what Jesus always did. Jesus took people where he found them, and then he moved them beyond that. In John chapter 8, one of the greatest examples of this in the New Testament, the Pharisees brought a woman who was taken in the physical act of adultery. Now, how did they do that? Who knows? But they did. They brought her to Jesus, and they threw her at the dirt at Jesus' feet, and they said, listen, our law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say? And they were seeking to trap Jesus. They didn't care about the woman. They said, well, if he said stone her, then his followers would leave him. If he said, well, don't stone her, they said, well, then you're a violator of our law. They had him either way, they figured. And so this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what, guys. You among you that has no sin, you throw the first stone. How about that? Well, that's a tough one. They weren't expecting to hear that. So they're, you know, they're throwing the rocks here, getting ready to stone her. And one by one, the, the rocks drop to the ground and they leave. And when it's all over with, it's just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus looks down at the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no, sir, no one. And Jesus responded. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
go and sin no more. Now, I want to tell you, in one sentence, Jesus captured acceptance and accountability. Jesus didn't say to her that it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Just get up and go do your deal, you, you know, and count yourself lucky. You, you know, a cat has nine lives. Well, maybe this is your second one. Go ahead and go back to your lifestyle. That's not what he said. Jesus said, I don't condemn you, but I'm not going to leave you here either. You get up and go and stop it. That's what he said. Go and sin no more. So in one sentence, Jesus communicated acceptance. I take you where you are, but accountability to grow beyond where you are. And that's our model. So we're reaching, we're accepting. Third, see, we're moving fast real quick. Changing, changing. This vision assumes an atmosphere of flexibility where people are willing to change and where we as a church are willing to, be, to change. In other words, this vision, folks, cannot be accomplished in an environment where people are married to the past and are inflexible and unwilling to change. Jim Peterson, in his book, Church Without Walls, makes an important distinction between tradition and traditionalism. Now, stay with it. This is going to take a moment. You're going to have to think a little bit to get this. Tradition, he says, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. This is how I told you it's going to make you think a little bit on that. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Then he goes on and clarifies. He says, traditions are established customs that are often handed down through generations and generally are observed. Traditionalism is the excessive respect for that tradition that gives it the status of divine revelation. Now, this is what he's saying. That tradition is great as long as it is relevant and effective. But when a tradition is no longer relevant or effective, but we keep doing it, then it becomes traditionalism, and that is deadly, and that obscures the meaning of the gospel to the lost world. You see, traditionalism is when we hold on to those traditions that are good and valuable and meaningful as long as they're working, as long as they're effective, and we move into traditionalism when they are no longer effective and no longer working, but we refuse to let them go. Now, this is why 95% of the churches in America are either stagnant or declining. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's an enormous statistic, but 95% of churches in America are stagnant or are declining, and it is because they are unwilling to change. You see, when we start answering questions that nobody is asking anymore, we're in trouble. When we're talking about issues that nobody is dealing with anymore, we are in trouble. Here's the simple truth. When the horse dies, dismount. That makes sense. That's good West Texas sense. When the horse dies, get off. When the tradition no longer has meaning and value and effect in communicating the gospel in our culture, it's time to dismount. So here we are. This is the vision. Reaching, accepting, changing, fourth. See, I told you I was going to move faster. Worshiping is the fourth one. i got to hurry here. It says in our vision statement, that this worship is contemporary worship. Now, when we talk about contemporary worship, folks, we are talking simply about style, and that's it. We are not talking about value and depth of worship. Value and depth of worship has nothing to do with style. It has to do with heart. Jesus said, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, that worship that is in spirit and in truth can be in a traditional environment or it can be in a contemporary environment. That's just style. The real issue is the heart. But our vision has specifically spelled out that because of the strategy that God has given us, that our style of worship is going to be contemporary. And that is because of the target that we are targeting to reach. We are trying to reach people that don't have church background or they're not too fond of the memories of the church background they have. Are you with me? You guys are not very humorous today. I thought that was pretty darn funny. We are trying to reach the person that doesn't have a church background or the person who had one, but they don't look back on it with warm, fuzzy memories.
You're not only dull, you're cruel. <laughs> a friend of mine illustrated this truth. He came to know the Lord in the middle 20s. Mine was a little bit younger than that, almost, almost out of my teens when I came to know Christ without a church background. He had zero church background. He got saved off the streets like I did in an environment that was a, you know, not inside the walls of a church. But when he came to know the Lord, you know, he wanted to go to church. You know, this is what Christian people do, so he wanted to go. So he went to a traditional church because that's all that was there at the time. And as they're singing the hymns, they've got the hymn book open here, and he's reading down at the bottom of the page. You know, at the bottom of the page in the hymn book, it lists the composer and the year and the date that hymn was composed. And so they're singing along here, and he looks down there, and it says 1791. He goes, whoa, this thing is old. And then the next hymn, he reads down there, and it says 1825. He says, whoa, that's a little better. And then he, the last one of the day, he looks at the bottom and it reads 1895. And he goes, that's darn near contemporary. That's just 100 years old. Now, folks, I'm not making fun of the hymns. What I've just said to you just illustrates the truth that many people in our culture and increasingly in our culture cannot relate to the traditional church that you might have grown up in. And they can't relate to that traditional worship style that you perhaps grew up in. It might shock you, as a matter of fact, to know that many of the hymn writers, of those hymns that he was even singing that morning, that many of those hymn writers would agree that contemporary worship style is the way you ought to do it. Because, you see, John Calvin, who was a prolific hymn writer, he was also a theologian, but he was a prolific hymn writer, not a musician, he wrote the words. When John Calvin wanted one of his hymns to be put to music, he didn't hire church musicians to do it. He went out and hired secular musicians. He said, I have these words that honor God, and I want, it, I want people to sing it in the contemporary style of worship. So he hired non-believing musicians to write music for his hymns. And many of those hymns that John Calvin wrote, we sing as the great hymns of the faith today. John Wesley was also even a more prolific hymn writer. This is what John Wesley did. John Wesley, when he wrote a hymn to God, he would go into the bars and he would listen to the songs that they were singing in the bars and he would set his words to the music of what they were singing in the bars and contemporary folk songs. He was a contemporary musician. And now, 300 years later, we're still singing his songs. That's stupid. The words are wonderful. And I love some of the words, and I have, a, I have some attachment to some of the hymns. I mean, some of the words of some of the hymns are great. I'm not real big about God of earth and outer space, but, but a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Man, you know, I mean, that's, that's good. That's strong as a garlic sandwich there, man. I mean... But the music is just the average guy off the street that doesn't have a church background. He never heard that. He doesn't have any of those warm fuzzies. He goes, where are these people coming from? What planet did they ship in from? And so our vision is contemporary worship, not because we just love rock and roll music, although I do. I love the jamming guitars and the screaming sax and the, the drums and the bass. I mean, I love that. I've cut my teeth on that kind of music, but that's not why we do it. We do it not because of what we want. We do it because that is a musical style that is going to appeal to the non-believer that does not have the warm fuzzies that we do with music. And lastly, I'll close with this. It's practical teaching. Someone say amen. Thank you. Practical teaching. Our vision statement ends with practical teaching teaching relevant to daily living the bible is the most practical book that was ever written god has so much now look folks he created us he not only created us he created people two thousand years ago he created them before that so he knew what people were going to need in all of human history in order to live life to its fullest so in his word, he gives eternal and lasting principles that are incredibly practical. He talks about how to have a healthy family. He talks about how to have a healthy marriage. He talks about how to have joy. He talks about how to deal with stress. He talks about how to have healing, emotional healing. All of that is in his word. 
incredibly practical. So my commitment to you is to be diligent every week to ask this question as I teach, so what? What difference does it make? It is the preaching arc question. You see, I have studied the, I have studied the Bible for 30 years academically to the what they call the terminal degree. That means there's no more degrees I can get. I wouldn't want any more anyway. I'm not sure I want the ones I've got sometimes. I've studied it academically. I've studied it practically for 30 years. I've memorized it. There's not much that I can't look at the Word of God and tell you immediately what it means anymore. It's not hard for me to do that. But the work and the hard part is to put it in terms that you can say, I can use that tomorrow morning at work. That's practical. That's real. God's Word is incredibly practical. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a travesty that we take the, the practical Word of God and we make it impractical in so much of what we do. So my commitment to you is to work hard at being practical. A few years back, I had a family that came to the church and they said, you know, we made the decision to join Celebration because our fourth and fifth grade daughters could understand what you were saying. And I thought, I thought, I'm not sure I like that. I think I'm smarter than that. I can make it harder than that where they couldn't. And, and then I realized it was the greatest compliment the guy could give me. Because instead of working hard to make it obscure and make it opaque, I work hard to make it clear and to make it practical. And still every now and then I have to struggle with that. I want people to know I'm smart, you know. But that's the vision. Practical. Applicable to daily living. There's a vision. Reaching, accepting, changing, worshiping, and teaching. I close with a story. In January of 1993, I went to a conference in Houston. It was the first innovative church leaders conference. We were 10 months, only 10 months into the transition. We transitioned this church. There were a handful of us at the time. We transitioned this church in 1992, of February of 1992, from a traditional format to the church that we have become today. And we did that without help. We did that without a, really a model too much to follow. We just, it was a vision that God planted, and we did it. Within a year, a group of pastors who were also trying to do church in a different way out there and wanted to know how many out there were doing it and how many out there were maybe interested in learning how to do it, formed a conference in Houston and invited people, and they were hoping for two to 300 pastors to show up. 800 of us pre-registered for the conference. And on opening day, there were 1,500 of us that showed up. Nobody had any idea. As a matter of fact, it got, just, it got wild and crazy. And next to us was a conference of Methodist evangelists that were meeting. And I got to tell you, I always thought Methodist evangelists was an oxymoron. But these guys love the Lord, and they were there talking about how can we bring our denomination back to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they opened the curtains, and they worshiped with us two or three nights in a row there because we just were jamming and rocking and rolling. And, and in that conference of innovative church leaders, there were guys that got up and told their stories, pastors, their stories of when they transitioned the church into being real. They had stories of people leaving the church. They had stories of people angry, of name-calling, of days of loneliness and depression and all of the things that came with that. Questioning even maybe, God, is this really what you're leading us to do? And I sat there and I listened to those guys tell those stories. I was not on the podium and I didn't tell my story. But I had had all of those experiences within the last 10 months. We'd had people who left the church who called me names. Uh, I had one couple who came in and sat down on my sofa when we were a few months into this transition people that I had, these are two people I had personally led to Christ, and we had discipled them. We'd seen them grow in the Lord. They came in, and they sat down in my office, and they said, James, we are leaving the church because you're crazy. And I said, well, I know what crazy looks like, and I've been there. I'm not crazy. I am more sane today than I've ever been in my life. 
To their credit, about five years later, they came back and apologized and said to me it was the greatest mistake they ever made when they left celebration, but they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand. And so as I listened to guys stand and tell their stories, I got to tell you, I began to cry. And this wasn't just a little tear trickling down. I'm talking, folks, I was crying like a baby and snot was falling on the floor. I mean, I was just having a real snot-blowing cry fest. And it was, it, they weren't tears of sadness, but they were tears of, of, of immense joy and praise to my God who had preserved me in the process and had preserved this church in the process. And they were tears of thanksgiving for the vision that he had planted and the ability he was giving us to carry it out and what we could be if we just stay that course and do what God called us to do. For the last 13, almost 14 years, we've been doing that. We have been maturing and understanding what that vision means, what it looks like. We have been growing and we have been increasingly blessed of God as we've become more centered on the vision that he gave us. And I thank him today. I thank him today because he has preserved us. He has blessed us over those years. And listen, this is what he's done. He's prepared us for what he has ahead that is so far beyond anything that we could dream or imagine. If God brings to pass over the next year or two, even half of the things that he has given us as far as opportunity for real life ministry, God is about to blow the ceiling off of this place. If he gives us even half of what he's put on the table in the, in the form of real life ministry. And I am so thankful to be a part of it. That's the vision. Let me tell you, it's big enough to challenge us for the rest of our lives. And it is practical enough to achieve it with his power and guidance. Let's pray together. We bless you, Lord, for your calling, your graciousness, your goodness to us. Thank you for this vision. Thank you, Father, that you have honored it for these years and you continue to do so to the extent that we have honored the vision. And we call upon you, living God, to do things in this next year or two that everyone will have to sit back and say, it's a God thing. Man didn't pull that together. That was the living God that did it. We submit to you to honor you and to follow you, to lay our lives on the altar, to be your instruments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.